Good morning. It's lovely to be here. It's a massive privilege to come and speak at someone else's church and a massive responsibility. Um, therefore, I'm massively anxious about doing it. And um, I can just, just to keep it real, I'll tell you, I didn't sleep very well last night. You know, you have those dreams about forgetting your notes or um, not having any clothes on, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, and then this morning, when I crept out the house a bit early to try and just have a bit of calm, um, um, I could hear the two-year-old wailing as I went down the street because he, he, his eagle eye caught sight of me as I, through the sitting room window. Um, so if I, I'll introduce myself. I'm Joy. Um, I'm married to Tom, who's over there. We have three children. Um, Connie, who's 11, and James, who's nine, um, they keep me grounded. I said, do you want to come? I'm coming to a different church to speak. It'd be really exciting. No, we'll go to our church. Thanks, Mummy. Um, so they've gone to um, All Saints, and um, Isaac is here um, with Daddy. He's, um, he's just recently turned two. Um, so that's, that's me. Um, I'm, I'm also um, a foster carer, um, an adoptive parent, and I, I run Home for Good here in Worcestershire. So this morning, um, I'd love to just talk about three things. The first one is that Christians are all adopted. It kind of does what it says on the tin. I want to share a little bit about why we adopted and then finally, I want to look at what happens when we engage in vulnerability. What happens um, to us and what does that look like? So um, the first one then, we are all adopted. Um, when, um, when I was a kid growing up, um, and I have to say actually, growing up, we, we met in a school like this. And so it's brought back loads of memories of my dad having a trailer um, and, a, and on the um, trailing that and with coffee cups and, and um, overhead projectors and um, things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm showing my age, but it's great to be here and it's, it's, it's really, it feels very familiar. It's like coming home. Um, but when I was growing up, we always went to spring harvest year after year. Um, me and my sister sort of moaning about it, but going. Um, she was a whiz kid. I was a glory company. I'm, I'm older than her. So I used to go and listen to Ishmael and um, learn lots of Bible verses through Ishmael's um, songs. And so I always remember um, Father God. Father God, I wonder how I managed to exist. So um, some of you are nodding. Um, I have just to say that when I listen to people speaking... Sometimes I get a bit distracted, and as they're telling me things, um, I'm busy thinking, oh, how old they are, <laughs> um, from the references they're making. So if, if, if you're anything like me, just put you out of your misery, and so you don't get too distracted. I'm 44. <laughs> um, so let's, let's look at Romans 8, um, 15 to 17. And um, in that, Paul talks about the purpose of adoption, but also the power of adoption. So I'll, I'll read that. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, 
the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So in other words, not only does adoption help us understand the problems of this world, it also helps us to handle them. So while there is cancer and childlessness, while there are mental health problems and injustice, while there is poverty and betrayal and death, there is also hope. While there is great frustration, there is also great expectation. But then, later on in Romans 8, verses 23 to 25, it says, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And there lies the paradox, that in verse 15, it appears our adoption has already happened, and then in verse 23, we're still waiting for it at the end of time. It's the now and the not yet that's often talked about. Um, When we adopted Isaac, He was 15 months old, and I should have a picture of us all in court. So that's at Worcester Crown Court, um, celebrating his adoption. Um, My big two, I often talk about the big two and the little one, because I really um, don't like the idea of mine and not mine. Um, All children, if they need a home, if they need a family, if they're in my home, they're my children. So the big two were really keen that this um, adoption hearing date was still during term time. It was looking a bit touch and go because we were in July and they desperately wanted a day off school. Um, But it did happen in July, so they got a day off and they were thrilled to be able to tell all their friends at school, we're not coming to school tomorrow because we're going to court um, to celebrate Isaac. So um, he's lived with us since he was a day old. Um, but when we adopted him at 15 months old, that's the point at which he had our surname, all the legal stuff was done. Um, It meant we could open bank accounts, apply for passports. And in the same um, way Connie and James were eligible to inherit um, what little we have, he also um, was eligible for that inheritance. So if you like, if when we left the courtroom, Tom and I were knocked over by a bus, he would inherit just the same as, as the other two. But we don't say, after um, leaving court, we don't say, right, we've done all the hard work, we've adopted you, we've spent the last 15 months jumping through hoops, um, being assessed, um, taking up references. Uh, we, don't, we don't say it's complete and then say, you know, you're on your own now, Isaac, and leave him on the court steps. That, that would be bad. He's, he's only two, bless him. Um, um, it's an ongoing relationship. The point of adoption is not just about the change of status. It's about that relationship. It's a committed, intimate relationship, and it's still being worked out today. Um, and that's how I think we reconcile our relationship with God, that we have been adopted, but we are still longing for the fulfillment of it. There's so much more to discover and learn. It's the now and the not yet. 
Um, I love watching Isaac grow and seeing his little character develop. Um, he is adopted now, but our work as parents isn't complete. We're not going to say it's done, um, you'll inherit would leave you to it now. Um, and there's more we need to do to help him discover who he's intended to be. And in that way, I think it helps me to understand that God is still parenting us to help us become more who we were intended to be. I heard Jane Williams once, that's Rowan Williams' wife, saying of our adoption, it's like coming back to the beginning and seeing it for the first time. As Christians, we are already sons and daughters of God, but the full manifestation of all that means will not come until the end. We are being adopted back into our true family, where we find our true selves. And children who've been adopted often have to relearn or learn new habits and behaviours. And it's not to mould them and kind of, you know... Um, oppress them. It's to free them, to enable them to flourish. Um, they need to relearn habits so that they can learn that they're accepted, um, that they can learn that they're loved, that they're secure, that they're in a safe place where they can discover who they are and discover God's goodness. So I think adoptive families can teach the church a lot about the church's true nature. Um, in John, 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2, we're reminded of who we are. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are children of God. And then, um, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, um, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I just think that's amazing. Before the creation of the world, he, in love, he predestined us for adoption Thinking back to when we were being uh, assessed to adopt Isaac, you get, um, we, I have so many social workers. I've got my um, supervising social worker who checks that I'm fostering properly, and then I had an adoption social worker who was assessing that, and then Isaac had a social worker. So um, we had lots of people visiting us and checking up on us all the time, which is probably not a bad thing, really. But um, when, when we were being assessed, the social worker had, has to ask lots of questions. But one thing she was struggling to understand was why we would want to adopt when we could have our own. Um, and, you know, I've already shared, I, I really struggle with that term. I don't like that. Um, but she had to ask about, um, you know, whether we were using contraceptives, could we still have children, how old was I? Um, because she just couldn't understand, well, why would you do that if you can have your own? But I think if we understand um, God's adoption of us, then it makes sense. 
So if we can grasp the greatness of what God has done for us in adopting us by grace, when he already had the perfect son in Jesus Christ, I think we'd elevate adoption. I feel like we need to move away from the view that adoption is the poor relation to having birth children and see it in all its glory. Why? Because adoption demonstrates the compassion of God as he welcomes lost and vulnerable children into his family. Because adoption manifests the faithfulness of God that has been and will be committed to us for eternity. Because adoption displays the love of God as he is willing to embrace us as his children forever. And because adoption highlights the grace of God as there is nothing we have done or will do to deserve it. So seeing adoption in all its glory, I wonder if it was easier for Paul when he was writing to the Ephesians, because in Greek and Roman times, adoption was common and seen as a high privilege, often connected with inheritance. Families would choose their heirs based on their skills, perhaps to run a business or to head up the family um, or even to lead a nation. In the Roman Empire, um, Emperor Nero and his four predecessors were all adopted, and in turn it was adopted sons who would succeed them. So this Roman practice of adoption was such an honour, it could in turn be quite an insult to birth family members. So I, I sort of daydream about this idea sometimes, and I was thinking, I wonder if it would be like if... Um, Her Majesty the Queen thought to herself, do you know what, I just don't know if Prince Charles is up for the job. Um, I think perhaps we ought to pick somebody else, and this would be my my suggestion, if I've got another picture. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, I I mean, actually, I'm a real royalist, so it is is in jest, but I I am quite fond of of, of 007. And yet God the Father already has a perfect son in Jesus Christ. He doesn't need to go and find somebody to, um, to you know, head up his family or lead a nation. Um, and yet he grants us the privilege of being adopted as sons and daughters. So um, I'd love us to watch this Home for Good video, which explains adoption far better than I can. I cut it at Krish Kandaya. We don't need to listen to him. (laughs) Um, It's beautiful. It chokes me up every time I watch that, actually. Uh, So the the second thing I'd love to share with you is why we adopted Isaac. Um, It was never our plan to adopt. We're um, foster carers. We've been fostering for about five years. I've, I've always wanted three children, but I was happy that our third child just kept changing. Um, Tom, if he was up here, would probably tell you a different story. He's always moaning at me that I keep moving the goalposts, and I promise that we'll do something, and then I change my mind. Or um, I say we're getting one chicken, and then I get five chickens. You know, it's a bit like that in our household. But he's long-suffering, and um, um, yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. I hope he'd say the same. (laughs) Um, But the reality was that when we started fostering with every child that we welcomed into our home, we had that conversation 
Um, when the time came when courts would decide that going back home wasn't going to be feasible for that child um, and when they'd assessed um, extended birth family as well and, and the plan was that it would, the only thing that would be suitable would be adoption, um, Tom and I would, would have that conversation. Are we the right family for this child? Should we adopt them? We've um, had the privilege of having 11 children come into our home over the last five years, and that's been with a mixture of, of um, emergency cases that may only stay for a weekend um, and respite, and then um, short-term. Um, our, our first little one was somebody called Darcy, and she came to us when she was four months old. At four months, she weighed less than my big two did when they were born. Um, it, was, it was a very stark sort of reminder of, of uh, the, the life and the, that my children had and the lives that others, others miss out on. Uh, and then we looked after Molly, who was um, a prem baby. And when she came home, she was allowed to come home when she hit four pounds. So when she was four pounds, she was big enough to come home. And I used to just wear her sort of down my top so that she would stay regulated with her breathing and her, her body temperature. Um, she stayed with us till she was eight months. Um, Darcy stayed with us till she was over a year. She stayed for a long time. Um, and then we had Summer who came home a day old. Um, she stayed for three months. Um, and then others as well, but they were the ones that stayed for the longest. And it's always such a blessing and a privilege to be able to be in the lives of those children. And we are still in touch, which is really lovely. We're like, I don't know, a special aunt and uncle or something. And I think being in touch reinforces that those children are in their right homes because we can see them. They, they sort of look like their, their parents um, and it's right. But then Isaac came along. Again, very similar to the others, straight from hospital. Um, we knew about him before he was born. So we were waiting, we were excited, we were buying bits and pieces of baby clothes. And when he came home, um, he still had blood in his hair. I don't think he'd had a bath yet. Um, so it was really very, very raw, that reality that someone had given birth and then gone home empty, um, holding that baby with someone else's blood still in their hair reminds you of um, the, the pain that someone else is, is experiencing. Um, that mama would have gone home with her body reminding her of what she's lost. And I think when you start to understand the other it heightens the privilege of what we were doing. Um, it made me understand the value of that little life. And so very early on, I did wonder if Isaac might be different. Um, and that's not to say that I loved him more than any of the others. I, I didn't. Um, I loved them all the same. And without wanting to sound smug, when you've had birth children and you know how much you love birth children, I can honestly say that how I love our looked-after children is no different. Um, I'm quite fierce about my children, and um, there, there is no difference. So for anyone that feels... Because I think when you have birth children, you don't always connect with them straight away. There's all sorts of things, a traumatic birth, postnatal depression. I think with love, it's... Um, I always think of it as a, a 
doing word to love. And it's through the act of loving, changing the nappies, feeding every four hours, getting up in the night. When you are actively loving, that's how you fall in love. So, um, yeah, it felt different with Isaac, even though I didn't love him any more than the others. Um, I don't know why it felt different. I wondered if perhaps he was less resilient than the others. When, when a child comes into our care, even at a day old, sometimes people say, oh, that's nice, they haven't had any trauma. Well, I think they have. Um, they've already lost their birth family, so there's a loss straight away. And then perhaps in utero, well, during pregnancy, there may well have been trauma too. And so I really sensed with him that he might not be as resilient as, as the others to connect with us, learn to love us, and then move on to another family. I just didn't feel like he'd be able to do that. And there were less barriers as well to being able to keep him. With the other children we looked after, either birth parents knew where we lived or they were um, higher risk, or we might have needed to move house, or they lived too close by, all sorts of different barriers. But there weren't any of those barriers um, in thinking about adopting Isaac. Also, there was a sense for me that there was more of a physical resemblance. And um, whilst we shouldn't consider the superficial things like what we look like, I think it's important for children that they're not constantly looking in the mirror and feeling like they're different. Um, Also, when Tom and I were chatting about it, he would say, oh, no, we can't, we're too old. Um, And his name, which was given to him by his birth parents, uh, made me think of Abraham and Sarah. And um, um, Tom and I are the same age, but he's always saying he's old, and I'm always saying I'm not. Um, So he can speak for himself. But I felt like, okay, well, if you're saying you're old, we're not as old as Abraham and Sarah, and they've got an Isaac, so we can have an Isaac. And then um, there were lots of little things along the way that made me wonder if it was right to, to consider keeping him. One day when I was in a coffee shop cradling him, who's probably only about eight weeks old, I think, and I was drinking my much-needed coffee, probably because I was still feeding in the night. And two ladies at another table kept looking over at me and then chatting to them each other and then looking back at me again. And I, I was quite used to that because he had this shot of jet black hair um, from the moment he was born so I did attract lots of attention because he was a you know scrummy delicious looking baby but eventually one of these ladies came over with her mobile phone and she introduced herself and she said I'm I'm so sorry I don't want to interrupt you but you're probably thinking why do I keep looking over and she explained that her son looked identical to Isaac in my arms when he was a baby And she got out her phone and she said, would you like to see what your son will look like when he's eight? (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness. Um, And I didn't know whether to, well, I I mean, I I held it together, I think. But then um, it was a special moment. Um, When I was planning this talk, I asked Tom, I said, oh, Tom, tell me, why did we adopt Isaac? And and he said, "Uh, because you said to. Um, (laughs) And then um, another contribution was from um, James, who would have been seven at the time, and he drew this picture, and it's really faint, but um, it's, 
It's a picture of Isaac. It's sort of abstract. You have to use your imagination. But on his tummy, he's drawn trains. Um, and, and it's quite sort of prophetic because Isaac loves anything with wheels. Um, but in the speech bubble, it says, God wants me to stay. And James, my seven-year-old, drew that. So we sought counsel from friends to challenge us, to ask us the right questions and to pray with us. Um, And Tom did have a more sensible answer as well. He just said, I think Isaac needs us. When when he came home from hospital, because of the experiences in utero, he was very jumpy. So any time if you just coughed, he would jump. Um, uh, There was, um, I mean... (laughs) That's him running around. But he wouldn't make eye contact. Um, He didn't trust me at all. Um, He had a a massive sort of fight-or-flight response to all sorts of things. When mums have a a stressful pregnancy, whether it's from domestic violence or, or whatever reasons, they are bathing their baby in cortisol, the stress hormone, Um, So that that baby, when that baby is born, is coming out ready for a fight. You know, where's the danger? And that's what Isaac was like when he came out. And um, I think you can see there's a transformation that um, he's making the noise, not scared of the noise now. And there's a video clip I want to show you of his second birthday, which we celebrated last week. Thank you, that's great. It's not completely gratuitous that I'm showing you that. There is, a, there is a reason. When I showed it to a friend of mine and they said that they just got caught up in the joy of it and you guys um, were very, you were humouring me and doing that too, which was lovely. With, with any, anything like that, a birthday, Christmas, um, the milestones that we see him um, meeting... That joy, that deep joy that we feel is matched only with the deep sadness and the loss felt by the other, felt by birth parents. And so every smile that I get, every time he calls me mama, every milestone I see, it's joyful and I do have that sense of deep joy. Every time I watch that video, I love it. But I hold intention with that, that someone else is left wanting and so I think it's really important to remember that the other side of that triangle, if you like, because um, often there's, there's, a, um, there's a foster carer, a child, and an adoptive family, and a birth family. It's four, actually. So um, that's why I wanted to show it, just to, I suppose, highlight that um, it is joyful, but there is a tension there. And I feel compassion for his birth family. And that's not because I'm a lovely person. I'm really not. Tom will vouch for that at home. I'm really horrible um, (laughs) to him particularly. But but I think that act of, like like I said before, to love being a doing word, that act of praying regularly for birth family helps to um, 
kind of enlarge our capacity, enlarge our hearts, extend the tent pegs of our hearts, if you like. Um, So we pray regularly for them. And I think it's helpful to remember that whilst birth parents can't always care for their children, they still care about their children. Um, Somebody commented on how good he is at blowing out candles because he's only two, so he should only have blown out one prior to that. But um, in um, the city centre in St Helens, they have a pop-up cafe once a week, which um, Isaac and I go to, and they've got one of those kind of Roman Catholic high church candle stand things. And so he always likes to light a candle, and we say a prayer um, every week for his birth mummy and daddy, thanking God for them, um, praying for their safety, and um, th- yeah, thanking God that they created such a beautiful boy. And he, he blows the candle out immediately, but that's how he's got so good at blowing out candles. But um, we hold intention that um, he has a birth family, and maybe one day we might all sit together and share food. Who knows? It's the now and the not yet. And to expand that tension to the wider context of church, um, I think if we're doing this thing called church well, we will have within our church families um, those that are living apart from their children or their grandchildren, those adults who are care-experienced, those who yearned to call someone mum or dad, those who have escaped domestic abuse, those who are recovering from addiction, those who have infertility stories, and those who have been adopted. It's tricky. It's not easy, and it gets messy. Um, Family life is hard, but accepting those tensions and recognising the hurts is helpful. So quickly, because I know that I've gone over my half an hour, the final thing I want to talk about is what happens when we engage with vulnerability. Um, I know that not everyone it's going to be right to foster or adopt, but what's the wider call? Um, And what do we understand by that term vulnerability? I I try, I like to use um, vulnerable and valuable together. I find that helpful. Um, And if we look at the Bible, we can see that God has a priority for the vulnerable. It's not, I don't think it's God's preferential view towards the poor, but he looks at who is most in need. It's like God is triaging the world. Um, And in the Old Testament, in Proverbs, it says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Um, And then in Deuteronomy, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving them food and clothing. And even stronger, um, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the alien and the fatherless or the widow. I find more helpful language for alien, if it makes you think of Sigourney Weaver, just think of stranger. So so we know that God is particularly interested in those three categories of vulnerability, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. And the Old Testament refers to the orphan or the fatherless 42 times. So in the context of the day, an orphan wasn't necessarily someone that had lost both their parents, it was just missing a patriarch, because... Even if they had a mother, they'd have no inheritance, so they would be powerless. 
And Psalm 68 says that God is the defender of the powerless, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. So we can see what God is concerned with. It's clear that God is concerned with the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And we see time and time again um, that where there are vulnerable children in the Bible, we think of um, Moses and Miriam, baby Jesus, Samuel, the young David, they're all vulnerable, but they all have central stories, and they're all used by God. So they're vulnerable and valuable. And Matthew 25 reminds us that we see the face of Christ in the least of these. And so I'm coming into land. So it's through the vulnerable that restoration comes to us. And I think it's helpful to think of it as um, mission to, for, and with the vulnerable. It's not just something we do to them. It's for them and with them because it's through the vulnerable that restoration comes to us. There's a mutuality and a reciprocity I really like that word, reciprocity. We should try and use it every day. Let's see if we can just slide it into our conversations. Um, In in Job, um, it talks of the man who was dying blessed me. And so it's that mutuality that serving the vulnerable is not just something we do to someone, but um, I think Job says later on, by helping those without hope, they blessed me. We capture God's heart when we serve the vulnerable. So to close, um, and back to the adoption of Isaac, he brings us so much joy and laughter, um, and uh, I think our our lives are so much richer for having him in it. But... um, Sometimes people say, oh, Joy, you're so amazing for doing this. Um, and I'm, I'm really not. Um, I think what is happening is that God is working in us, um, in Tom and I, um, bringing healing to us, um, growing our patience, um, hopefully growing the, the fruits of the Spirit, um, bearing fruit, transforming us. So we're not amazing for adopting, but God is doing amazing work in us, refining us. And I suppose the point is, we would be missing out if we didn't adopt Isaac. There'd be a a gap, a hole in our family. And to the wider church, I would say that we miss out if we don't serve the vulnerable. And I think um, my notes have got a bit confused, but I've got a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote which I will leave you with. Oh, I suppose I should talk about stockings. Let me just read this. I found this on social media yesterday from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The exclusion of the weak and insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. Shall I mention stockings very quickly? Who still gets a stocking? Brilliant, yes. Oh, wow, well done. That's, I thought I might be the oldest that gets a stocking. Sorry. I'm just put my foot in it, haven't I? There's a group of people that I'm, I'm particularly interested in and have a heart for, and that is care leavers. So those people that haven't been adopted... Um, for various reasons, and adoption isn't the gold standard. So for some people, it's just not right that they're adopted. And so they will age out of the care system at 18, and then what happens to them? 
They may be able to go back to their foster family for Christmas. They might not. They might not have had a good experience there. They might not want to. They might not have room there anymore for them. So often, care leavers are on their own at Christmas time. They, it might not be appropriate for them to go back to their birth families. If it was, then they wouldn't have been in care in the first place. So there are 400 of those young people in Worcestershire this Christmas who may well be on their own because they haven't got someone to go home to. And I just think that that's not okay. Um, Our children, we don't say you've aged out of family life. You don't need to come back anymore. I hope that my children will, will feel welcome to come back as often as they like. So those 400 young people, I would love them all to have a stocking this year, a homemade one, because I think that speaks value into their lives. So if any of you um, like knitting or sewing, I need 400 of these. And I've spoken to care leavers about what they want, and they tell me Haribo. Um, Very specifically, they want Haribo in there. I suggested a bath bomb, something nice for a bath. They said, no, Joy, our bedsits don't have baths. We've only got showers. So they said shower gel. But it has to be not male or female because I don't know the breakdown of those 400 young people, whether they're boys or girls. Obviously chocolate, it's a no-brainer. A candle, they said... We're in our our own flats for the first time ever. We can do what we like. We can burn a candle if we want to. Something like a squishy or a stress toy or something to fiddle with. And novelty Christmas socks. So around the county, with the 12 Home for Good churches that we have, I'm asking each of those Home for Good churches if they would gather 200 of one of the items. And I'm asking City Church if you would do candles. And then um, hopefully by the 22nd of this month, we will have a massive stocking stuffing session where we put together 400 stockings and deliver them to social services. We want to blow social services away with our church's hospitality and generosity. But more than that, we want to say something to those young people that they've not been forgotten. And I really, there's a lot resting on this. I don't want to let any of them down. They've been let down enough by adults through the care system or through their families. So I really want to do this for them. Thank you.